around the clock fitness started out of spunk. My favorite thing to say because that. it's absolutely true. It was one of my largest failures as a venture capitalist. I had invested millions of dollars in a company. Um, in fact, I, it started out, I invested 100000 and I was paid back with a wonderful return. Then they asked for 500000 wonderful return. A million, wonderful return. $1.8 million, gone. Disappeared in the middle of the night. No money to be found. Sorry, too bad for you. Now, in the midst of all that, I had built a small little baby, baby fitness center um, for their main operation. Um, so we went through the lawyers and end of the day, you don't get blood from a rock. Uh, the money was gone. So I went in and said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to relieve $400,000 of the 1.8. I'm going to write off the rest of it. I'm going to take this little baby fitness center in Cape Coral. Mm -hmm. And I built the first around the clock fitness literally across the street. You can stand in one parking lot, throw a baseball and get the, the flagship around the clock fitness. And I did that out of spite to uh, regain my lost um, capital. Welcome to the Real Deal Show, where we talk to real estate investors doing real deals. Listen as our guests share with you their tips, tricks, and secrets to doing real deals. Now, here's your hosts, Britt Foshi and Logan Hand. All right, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of The Real Deal Show. And today is an episode I'm very, very excited for. This is one I've been waiting for uh, to bring you guys. And who we have on the show today uh, is one of the best mentors and influencers that I have in my life. Um, he's a phenomenal entrepreneur, venture capitalist, uh, real estate investor, philanthropist, um, always levels himself down, very relatable, and is just a huge success both in the community and nationally as well. So today I am very excited to bring Mr. Derek Fay on the show today. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Logan. My pleasure. So why don't we start with why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about your story? You have an amazing story. You came from nothing. Um, you weren't born with a silver spoon or anything like that. And you've just been able to create an amazing success story. So take it away. Start from the beginning. How'd you get to where you are today? Silver spoon is a funny statement to me because I always chuckle and think I was born with a uh, plastic spoon in my mouth. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up on uh, Section 8, for those of you that don't know what that is, welfare, grew up in the projects in Rhode Island, um, you know, from a young age, really raised, I joke that I raised my parents uh, in the sense that I really was the main provider and really the uh, father figure to my siblings and in some odd, strange way uh, to my, uh, my mother as well. Um, wonderful woman, but just, you know, stroke of bad luck. Um, and so, you know, from a really young age, I realized that it was, um, you know, it's interesting when you're in that environment, you, you, you see a lot of people that just accept their fate, um, A, because it's what you're living day to day, and B, more so because it's reinforced by your family um, as a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but for whatever reason, even from the very early, early ages, I remember thinking that this was not okay and it was not going to be what 
uh, my family was going to experience and I was going to change that. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that really was my main motivator in life. Uh, wasn't to chase a mansion, it wasn't to chase a sports car, it was to change the life of my siblings and my parents. And so by having that as my why or as my motivator, you can imagine how strong that was and how uh, nothing that was in front of me from an obstacle standpoint was of any merit to me. Right. So it was just dismissed by me so easily. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was really the main reason that at a young, young age, uh, I had the success that I had. Um, and just blind ignorance that I was born with to believe <laughs> that I could do anything, hmm. right? So if anybody ever asked, I hear, you know, Bronx, all these guys say it, and chuckle, I chuckle because at a young age, I, if you ask me, can you do something, I always said yes, and I just figured it out. Hmm. And honestly, I still do that today. I'm by far, I'm very rarely the smartest guy in the room, ever. But I am the guy that can figure it out. Mm -hmm. I am the guy that knows how to put people around me that do know how to do it. Um, I know how to lead. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really paved the way through a lot of or all of my successes today. So talk a little bit about when was the first interaction? Because in your life, it happened really young mm -hmm. when you first did something that made you money. Because I remember as a kid, you started, tell the story. Yeah, the light bulb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's funny how you remember certain things in life, right? So very, very vividly as if it were yesterday, and that's one of those. Um, I was working out at a health club. I remember the name of the club like it was yesterday, Bodies Unlimited. It was a little hole in the wall, maybe the size of my current office. And it was, to me, it was a safe haven, right? It's a place you went to de-stress and get away from the responsibility that I had at 10 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and I was around these monsters that I looked up to, right? And uh, so the place was, I worked out there for a couple of years, maybe from 10 to 13. And the owner came to me and said, as they did back in the day, gyms would just close overnight, take everybody's money and leave. Uh, and he would say, he said to me, look, we're closing down uh, in a couple of days. Just want to let you know, don't tell anybody. And I was devastated. I remember feeling so devastated. What can I do? Because I'm inherently a helper, a saver, you know, because of my upbringing. And it occurred to me, I knew this guy that worked out at the gym who to me, was the wealthiest man I've ever met, and that definition was he had a BMW. Now, to me, that was the wealthiest man in the world. And so I went to him and said, listen, you know, they're closing down. I remember him saying, well, is there anything I can do? And I said, well, he told me that they're behind in rent. I don't even know if I really understood what that concept was then. Yeah. Um, behind in rent a couple months, and he said, well, tell him I'll give him the money. So I went to Donnie, was his name, uh, and I said, listen, I got this guy said he's going to pay the rent. I saved the gym. And he said to me, if you can do that, you have a free gym membership forever and you can eat anything you want at the, the cafe, whatever it was. <laughs> and that fucking light switch, that light switch went off for me that I, I, can, I can trade people for people or I can trade people for something. So I don't know if I knew what I was doing, but from that day forward, I, start, I started calling myself and through even my early 20s, an intermediary venture capitalist. I don't know that that term exists, mm. other than that's how I put myself over. And I had, I had a skill of people. I knew how to talk to people, I knew how to relate to people. Um, and so I had a very successful run at identifying people that had money. I was surrounded by people that needed money. And I was one of the few people that could relate to both of them. Mm. 
because I was one that needed it and I just knew I was going to be one that had it. And so I started connecting these people and taking small amounts of those deals for myself. And then over the course of, you know, uh, my late teens, early twenties, all of a sudden I was just, I woke up, it seems like I woke up one day and I was the guy with the money. Yeah. Um, and so that, that one pivotal event, that's the, to me, that's the, the thing that sticks out to me that said, hey, wait a minute, there's something here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So today you own Around the Clock Fitness mm -hmm. um, based in Fort Myers. Um, how many locations do you have? Uh, six locations. So fill in the gap for us between the light bulb moment yep. and we're sitting at the Around the Clock today interviewing you. Fill in the gap from how you got from there to here. Okay. Um, I'll try to do that in a condensed form. <laughs> Plenty of time. Um, so I was a venture capitalist overnight, so to speak. Yeah. Right? I had money. Um, I knew I wanted to go to Fort Myers. I knew I wanted to start a management company because when I was young, the few vacations we went on were in Florida. My grandfather scrapped the money together to take me. And to me, Florida was the greatest thing in the world to me. It was the movies, it was wealth, it was what, it, to me it was, it was everything. And so um, I had this dream stuck in my head that I was gonna go to sunny Florida and become a multimillionaire. And um, I moved to Florida. Uh, I didn't necessarily, you know, people tell the story that well, asked me why did you go to Fort Myers and honestly I knew I didn't want to go to Miami because my personality mm -hmm. I would have probably have gotten lost in Miami and Jacksonville so I literally just put my finger on the dot we were Red Sox fans Red Sox family spring training so we ended up here um, I wanted to start a management company and specialize in something at that time was my passion sports health and wellness so I wanted to specialize in country clubs fitness centers uh, spas, things of that nature, but I really had no experience in doing so. So I got here to Fort Myers at the age of 22. Um, I was already a millionaire, uh, liquid millionaire, not paper, it's a difference. Um, and I took a job, there was a, a, an ad in the paper for an operations manager for the largest management company in the world, paying $35,000 a year. And I'm full-time <laughs> making um, well into the six figures annually. Um, and I took a job 50 hours a week, making $35,000 a year. So, um, I took that because I knew I, I had this vision of what I thought a management company looked like, but I was smart enough to know that I really didn't have any clue. Yeah. So I took the job. I learned, uh, inside of six months was promoted from operations manager to uh, senior manager a couple months later to the youngest general manager in their history. Three months after that, they awarded me four country clubs as a district. The day I was awarded that, I quit uh, gracefully um, because I had I assumed that I had learned potentially everything I had to learn or at least enough to go off and start my own management company, which I did, uh, which turned into 3F Management. We very quickly started uh, acquiring contracts. Um, our kind of niche for contracts was we go into very successful companies. And I'd give the big pitch of all of the things we can do and all the money we can save. And everyone's in there shaking their head as you do in a boardroom and you're waiting for what the, the, the pitch is, how much is it? And my pitch was, it's all for free. We'll do all these things for free. We'll save you all this money. And if we do, by the way, 
will take 20% of the city. So not far from what I was doing when I started out to be an intermediary VC, just at a different level. Sure. And everybody said yes. And the more successful the company, the more money there was to be found in stupid things. Yeah. You go through a PL of any successful company, and I promise you, you're going to find hundreds of thousands of dollars of waste. And it's a wonderful opportunity if you're young and starting and you have a head on your shoulders, go in there and make some money for yourself. And that's what I did. Yeah. And then I turned that into contracts. Um, and around the clock fitness started out of spunk. My favorite thing to say, because that. it's absolutely true. It was one of my largest failures as a venture capitalist. I had invested millions of dollars in a company. Um, in fact, I, it started out, I invested a hundred thousand and I was paid back with a wonderful return. Then they asked for 500,000, wonderful return, a million, wonderful return, 1.8 million, gone. Disappeared in the middle of the night, no money to be found. Sorry, too bad for you. Now, in the midst of all that, I had built a small little baby, baby fitness center um, for their main operation. Um, so we went through the lawyers and end of the day, you don't get blood from a rock. Uh, the money was gone. So I went in and said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to relieve $400,000 of the 1.8. I'm going to write off the rest of it. I'm going to take this little baby fitness center in Cape Coral. Mm -hmm. And I built the first around-the-clock fitness literally across the street. You can stand in one parking lot, throw a baseball, and get the, the flagship around-the-clock fitness. And I did that out of spite to uh, regain my lost um, capital. And because I say that, that out of spite, because I, my goal was never to own anything. That was my goal. Yeah. I didn't want to own anything. Of course, now I own massive amounts of things. But it's funny how things change. And so I built around-the-clock fitness. And I had one location for about six years because I refused to scale it, even though everything uh, said to do so, because I didn't want to get into that. Yeah. We got to a point where it was so successful, it was overwhelming that scaling it was inevitable. And then we did, and we built five locations over a two and a half year period, six locations, 40,000 members, 20 million a year in revenue. Um, questionably one of, or potentially one of the more valuable brands independently owned in the industry. Um, so I think that got us from there to there. Yeah. We've got some holes, That's covered, good. but we got there. Well, that was good. I would, uh, we're going to touch on a little bit more about ATC because I would argue that, that Derek um, uniquely created probably the best business model in the gym space that nobody else was able to create except for you. You essentially created a high-end luxury feel at basically a low-end entry-level price point for a membership fee, no upfront costs, and um, it's just a model that most people could never figure out. But before we go there, you skipped a, a, a story that I love mm. that I would refer to as a power move. So I want to back up a little bit. So you moved to Fort Myers from Rhode Island at 22, 23, somewhere in there? 22. Okay. Already a millionaire, which is a huge accomplishment at that age. And then you make a power move. You're here for less than a handful of months. A couple months, yeah. A couple months. A month and a half. And you make a huge power move. And for the real estate people that listen to this, you have to understand this story because it's an amazing story. And um, it, it was incredible what you did. So explain that one move that you did. When you first got here, I wish you could see me smiling because it is one of my favorite it's a stories. Great, great move. I think, I think after we get through it, maybe talk about it. But I think one of the best parts about it is the fact that I had money at the time. Mm -hmm. So what I did wasn't required, 
but let's, let's circle back on that, mm-hmm. right? So I moved here at 22. And my first goal, of course, other than the things that we mentioned, was to meet people. Uh, meet people that I felt were influential, people that were doing things that I wasn't doing. As I know Logan believes, and I'm sure you do, surrounding yourself by people that not necessarily have more. That's not what drives me. But people that are doing more um, is very important. Mm-hmm. And so that was my number one goal. So fast forward a couple of months, I've met two of the most influential uh, real estate agents in the entire state of Florida. Big wigs at WCI when WCI was still a thing. Um, so we're in the car. We're heading to lunch. Um, and uh, she turns around and says, hey, listen, we're going to make a quick stop in Naples, if you don't mind. Not at all. And so back then, they may still do it. They used to gather four or five of the biggest realtors in the area, and they would pitch these projects or essentially award these projects to the realtors before it would hit the market. So we were, what it is, is it's 300 um, apartments uh, in one big plaza, as you've seen millions of them. Um, Now, what no one knows is the developers decided to convert these to condominiums. They brought these five realtors in and said, how many do you want? How many do you want? Essentially pre-selling them before anyone has an opportunity. So I'm sitting there watching this process and everyone's writing down and boom, 300 of them gone. The developer has quote unquote made his millions. The realtors have made their share and the general public is too bad for you. It occurs to me uh, that there's an opportunity here. So in a very short period of time, meaning the very same day, I do a little bit of research and I find that the tenants have the right as tenants to first write a refusal to purchase as long as they're in good standing their unit. Now, none of these people have the ability to do so. So I draft a document um, informing all of the rental, renters that this is occurring. Hey, you may not know, wonderful news, the developers decided to upgrade your units into condos. It's going to be a financial windfall for you if you have the ability to buy. If you do, I highly recommend that you do. However, if you don't, I would love to provide you $1,500 to relocate if you would sign over your rights to me. Draft this document. I spend less than $100 to pay for a courier to hand deliver every one of these documents to the people that live there. And I buy a phone. Not just like a burner phone. Don't know why I did it. I feel maybe deep dark inside, I was a little worried about what was going to happen, but it damn well wasn't going to stop me. Less than 24 hours later, more than 220 of the 300 people call me and say, we're not staying. We'd love to take advantage of the $1,500. Wonderful. That number eventually dropped down to about, I think, 100. I knew you were going to ask me. So like 182 of the people signed over their rights to me. Now, the realtors and the developers, everyone found out about it. Because you can imagine we're suing you, you can't do this. Ultimately, there was nothing they could do to me. I was informing them. I found my angle and I applied the angle. (laughs) So we went through about a couple of weeks and it was clear to them that I was going to move forward with it. Although I did not have at that time enough money to go through with buying all of these units. Um, So we ended up sitting down in negotiations and the landlord, uh, the developer said, what do you want? And I said, well, I know what you're making. Um, so I think what would be fair would be, uh, $30,000 a unit, uh, and I'd walk away. I'll sign the, the rights back over to you. Now, remember I've spent about $85 so far in a couple of days of my time. Oh, uh, maybe 120 to include the burner phone. <laughs> um, 
and back and forth. And we ended up landing at uh, $28,000 uh, per agreement that I had. So that ended up being just over $5 million. <laughs> and I spent about $120. Now, as I've told this story to some people, I wonder to myself and still do, and maybe you guys, how many people in that situation would have seen that in? So when people say to me, you need money to make money or you have to be lucky, was it lucky that I was there? Perhaps. Was it luck that I saw the angle and applied it and stood strong and executed it? I don't think so. No. But it certainly wasn't because I was the smartest man in the world either. Yeah. So I think having your eyes open, being aware and just having, having it mm -hmm. to just go for it mm -hmm. and try um, is everything. Mm. Man, <laughs> <laughs> it blows yeah. me away every time I hear it too. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty pretty amazing. I guess there's going to be a lot of people that listen to that story and think, um, "How do I see things like that?" And so, I guess it's maybe a little bit of an odd question, but how do you see things like that? What, what when you walk into a room and you're sitting in meetings, are you always looking for an angle? Maybe just kind of like say like one mm -hmm. went through your mind and, and things like that. Yeah. So for me, and I don't know where it comes from. Some people think I'm a pessimist, but at heart, I'm really not, but I absolutely question everything in particular. I question the things that are most obvious, meaning I question the things that if you put 10 people in a room and ask the question, they all would say, yeah, absolutely. That's it. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I question. So I fun, I question the most fundamental things mm -hmm. And by questioning the most fundamental things, it takes me to places that I don't think other people go. Um, is there a gift to it? Was I born with it? I don't know. I just know that that's, that's factual. Yeah. I accept nothing as fact. Yeah. And I have, I just have a blast questioning that stuff that everyone thinks is, is, and it isn't just business. Stuff. Sure. I've got two little girls, nine and 11, and we do it together. We find the most obvious things, whatever it is, and we break it down and we question it. How would I do that different? Sure. Right. How would I do this process that everyone does the same way? And then, so maybe I accidentally trained my brain to do it. That's I don't know. And maybe I'm doing that with my daughters intentionally mm -hmm. um, to see what, because I didn't have any guidance. So, so exciting to me, mm -hmm. aid a mentor, but more so with my little girls yeah. to provide um, support. But also to play with some of the things that I uh, subconsciously did that I now, because I have kids, I'm trying to pay attention to and see what that does in another person. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that adequately answers it, but I know that's, that's good part of it. That's good. And I think that actually it's great advice because this is sort of what we tell all of our listeners is question everything. You know, uh, if someone sends you comps, the worst thing that you could do is Believe them, you right. know, right. Uh, and it's not that you question their judgment or their integrity. It's that, you know, you need to see for yourself what's going on in the numbers. Mm -hmm. And I think to question sort of everything can actually appear on the surface as uh, maybe doubtful or mm -hmm. even um, maybe there's some insecurity there. But I would actually argue the opposite, um, that it actually is proper due diligence. It's wise. And it's the people that are the wisest that are doing the most questioning. I agree. Um, so I love that. I when, love it come, that. It, when it comes to pricing, this is going to seem silly to you guys, but it's still my thing. And you ask my vendors, 
whenever someone provides me a quote or a bid for anything, as soon as I see it, instantaneously, I always say, that's too high. With the most confidence and the strongest stance you're ever going to see in 100% of the, I've never received a bid that didn't get reduced ever, simply because they know it. You can have 400 pages and I'm always just going to go like this. Go to the bottom page, look at it and go, that's just way too high. <laughs> and the people don't know what to do. Yeah. And, and 100% of the time it gets reduced. It doesn't matter. I'm sure now people that work with me go a little bit high <laughs> knowing that I'm going to go low. But yeah. Yeah. But uh, that's again. I love it. See, that's the that's one of the most amazing things, at least that I've experienced about you, is you're arguably one of the best negotiators that I've ever met. Um, and it's cool because you start with an angle. You always find an angle or have an angle, no matter what it is you're doing. And then that angle plays into how you're going to negotiate and structure the deal. Always. And I would say, uh, you know, Derek is involved in several different businesses and he always likes new things and, and, and supporting entrepreneurs. But for him, he lives for the chase, the hunt and the kill of the deal. That is, I feel like what makes you tick. So can you give, what would be some of your best advice on like negotiating even bigger deals? Oof, negotiating. Because huh? negotiating is hard and you taught yourself relatively. Yeah. I mean, to me, negotiating is... It's an emotional conversation that lasts a while. To me, it's more about uh, getting to know the person across from you. What is their motivation? So is it a sales rep who's most concerned about their commission? Is it a developer who, why is that person developing? What, what, what are the margins that are important? So not going into a negotiation blind is, in my opinion, everything. But it's also secondary to what makes the person that you're negotiating with tick? Do they like to be adversarial? Do they like to build a relationship? Do they like to? So for me, every negotiation is polar opposite from the other. Um, if you have a book or someone tells you that there's one way to negotiate, you're wrong because there's not one person the same as the other. There's not one motivation that's the same as the other. And that's even true sometimes when you're negotiating with the same person on a different deal. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know how to put into words how I negotiate other than it's about building a relationship, building a rapport, finding out what the other person needs, not what you need. That's, that's a given, but you're rarely going to get what you want if you're just chasing what you want. So if you can find a way to parallel your needs with the other person's needs and try to achieve both, the degree of success is is highly elevated, right? And people get it and they feel it, that it's not just a selfish uh, ambition. And, you know, the most important thing I think I do whenever somebody brings me an opportunity, the phone rings all day, every day with opportunity. Uh, hey, I've got this thing. The first thing I say is, let me just tell you, before they ask, let me just tell you, if this turns into something, you have my guarantee you are going to get paid. Now, th they're going to demand that anyway, but the power in letting them know that my first order of business is to let them know that I'm going to take care of them changes the whole structure of the negotiation before it has even begun. Mm -hmm. I need you to know I'm looking out for you. Mm -hmm. It's so important. And it's not just bullshit because I am. Yeah. Every deal, everybody has to make money. I always prefer that I make the most, <laughs> <laughs> but it's vitally important that everybody feels like 
if I'm happen to be the guy in the deal that I care about everybody else in the, in the structure of the deal, because then you're not negotiating against them. They're negotiating for you. And that's where I find myself on all deals. Ultimately is the people that are supposed to be negotiating against me are actually negotiating for my deal and pulling for my deal because it benefits them. Right. Right. I love that. So to just shift a little bit, Logan mentioned that you're really involved in the community. Um, philanthropist. And so I want to just tell the listeners a little bit about what you're involved in, why you do the things that you do and sort of what motivates you there. Yeah. I don't think it's a hard stretch to figure out why it's important to me to help people. The most exciting thing in my life that I'm able to do is maybe step back. The best part about having money is to be able to help the people around you. And that can be a stranger, it can be your family, it can be a friend. But to me, it's, it's the most powerful moment when I realized that I came so far and I'm not knocking why or other people chase money. And I'm not saying that the cars aren't cool and the house and all that stuff. But for me, there's really no, there's nothing close to the feeling of being able to change somebody's uh, pattern or, or, or path in life. And I've said many times to my daughters, no matter how much money I end this game with in the game of life, whether it's a hundred million, a billion or 10, whatever that number is, there is no one that's going to come up to my two daughters and say, Sophia, Isabel, let me tell you, your father was the wealthiest man. He has so much money. Well, they may, but what I'm getting at is what they are going to say. And what I want them to say is, Isabella, Sophia, your father was the kindest man. Mm. Let me tell you a story about how he did this. Mm. And so that's what I chase. It's good, right? Um, what do I do in the community? My, my kind of problem is I have an inherent issue with notoriety for it. Um, I battle with that mm -hmm. because somehow it feels uh, just not as genuine if I'm on the news getting uh, publicity for doing it. So for years, decade now, we've, we've quietly given millions and millions to a lot of really great causes. We do it kind of under the cover. Um, and I don't know if that's right or wrong. And I'm certainly not saying it's wrong. People that do get notoriety for it. I'm just saying there's something about it. that doesn't feel as good. It's just kind of doing it quietly. And, it, and maybe part of it is I know that when I was very poor, it was a hard thing to have to acknowledge and so when I give to someone and the news wants to prop them up, I have to imagine that doesn't feel great for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure that plays a role in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, from business donations to personal donations to charities, uh, we're involved in all of it on all levels. Uh, we give a lot. Uh, we have a national charity now because we've been doing some other things. Round the clock caring. We're buying single family homes for homeless families with children. Um, and placing them and they were living there for free for six months and we were giving them financial tutoring and job placement and meetings with, you know, with myself and really trying to attack the, um, the root cause of homelessness, which is very rarely just about money. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's awesome. Sorry about that. Now you're, you're good. No worries. That is, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty intense. And I actually remember, cause I, I have one of those stories about you. Cause I remember you called me out of the blue and you told me this story. And I, it is one of those things that sticks with me. Cause I, it was like one of those moments where I was like, damn, this, this guy's really cool. You know what I mean? And not cool from the perspective of business, but from how you are as a person, 
You know what I mean? Um, and I've told you that before, but I love the story of you were at Publix one time and you were checking out and the people in front of you, they didn't have enough money to pay for their bill. And the cashier took money from himself and paid the rest of the people's yeah. tab. And so Derek gets up and checks out and he pays. And then at the end of it, he gives the cashier, I think it was like a hundred bucks. hundred bucks, yeah. And just made the dude's whole entire day. So he did a kind act and then he was rewarded mm-hmm. for the kind act. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think, and I do not that, but I think it's so important. I teach my children this too. It's so important. When you see any act of kindness, if you can in any way reinforce that act, mm-hmm. because, it, because it's so rare lately. Um, and that shows a little bit of my age, that statement, and just realized that. <laughs> um, but yeah, any opportunity I have to reinforce kindness, whatever it is, whether it's holding a door for me or letting me go in line first to Starbucks, whatever it is, I really make an effort to try and reinforce it. Um, because I think it's important, A, as an example to my children, but B, just globally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it's cool with you guys, I'd like yeah. to dive into around the clock a little bit more. Yeah, like, uh, so you Absolutely. started in the Cape with one store. You said in two and a half years, is that right? You took it to six. Yeah. So we had one location for about five years. And then when we di- decided to expand, we expanded five clubs over uh, about two years. And our clubs are about 40. They range from our average club size is about 45,000 square. Okay. But the, the key to success is in that too. Okay. How many total members do you have? Uh, right around 40,000. 40,000. Right. So Which in the spectrum of the industry, even our, the big boys, LA's that, that really is, we do about double the business, um, per club, meaning really we do the revenue and business and memberships of about 12 of your say LA fitness. Wow. Style clubs. So what did, tell us, what did it take to get from one club to six clubs? Um, what kind of vision did you have? Did it take money? Did it take hard work? Did it take marketing? Did it take the right team? Like what were some things that really led to from one to six? Yes. <laughs> yes. D, all the above. All of those. So I think something that uh, Logan said, uh, which I think is worth revisiting, is we did something special or different or important in this market where there was obviously a void. But that was, we built a model that is very difficult to compete with. Now, let me preface that. Meaning, let's just break it down fundamentally and raw. It's tough to compete with from a cost standpoint, meaning point of entry. So we build these very large, high-end clubs that cost 5 to $7 million per location. Well, that's just inside. That's not the outside. That's not equipment. Now, to put that into perspective, that sometimes that would be maybe double to triple what even Whatever you vision as a big club, maybe double or triple what that costs yeah. to provide. And then, as Logan said, we're, we're, we're providing it at a rock bottom, low, low price. So affordable luxury. So I've insulated myself to some extent from someone coming in and spending more, pricing it for less, all that type of stuff. So how do you do that? Well, you either throw good money at something that has a 30-year ROI, or you find a creative way to go about it. And that's, as you can tell, kind of my MO. Um, And so a combination of relationships and smart negotiating with landlords and all of those things, I've taken my cost factor from, say, $7 million to build to um, maybe 25% of that, but providing the same product. Um, And not to get too much into the secret sauce. um, (laughs) We we could. um, But again, it's... Um, 
strategic relationships, landlord participation, uh, strategic uh, institutional financing, um, a bunch of things that seemingly make the impossible possible. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I'm a big fan of the gyms. I mean, I, I try to get them. I just moved, so now I want one in that area because I really don't think there's anything much better. I mean, I think you've nailed the model. Um, so talk to us a little bit about, because some of the hardest part of growing a company um, is dealing with the people and growing and managing people. It's the largest challenge. Yeah. What, what advice do you have on that? If someone's listening and they have a small business, they're trying to grow. What advice do you give on maybe managing people and how you can get them to grow the vision that you have too? The hardest problem, bring me back in. I tend to go off sometimes. The, the, <laughs> hard, the hardest problem, if I didn't answer that, nobody will get back to it. Um, the hardest problem with scaling is no matter how, no, no matter how dedicated you are to reproducing a product that, that is equal to your first product, it, it becomes very difficult. Right. It's a, it's a bad example of making a copy of a copy of a copy. But when you're one location, you're a standalone business, and as you should be, you're the guy doing the day-to-day, the -day, which I did with the one club, even though I had everything else going on. Everything's perfect. And then you go to two clubs in – you, or two, two locations and you can't help but be split. And then it turns to four and then it turns to eight. And so it's very difficult. And that's why when I look at, uh, at businesses that have thousands of locations and you hear the criticisms, it, it, it gets me, right? Because I get it. Um, but staffing is by far the largest obstacle um, because you should want it, every employee to have access to you because mm -hmm. I did. Um, but it becomes woefully apparent that it's not a reality. And that transition from going from one location, whatever that may be for you, and knowing every single person and having that daily interaction, it, at least for me, it becomes, it becomes a challenge to stay connected to everybody. And that's a part of the dilution of model to some extent too. Um, but um, you try to offset that by building a strong executive team, strong on-site managers, and then you try to spend time, the bulk of the time with them in hopes that they will then take whatever it is you had, made your business special and bring that out to the mm -hmm. field. Um, but it's very difficult. You know, I, my chief operating officer is someone that came in as a personal training manager at $30,000 a year. And we spent every day, eight hours a day for almost five years until he got to a point where now if he sat here in this chair and you asked us questions, you would think you were talking to the same person. And so that's, you know, that's a, that's something that is, uh, that has helped. Um, but finding talented people, um, is difficult because when you find those talented people, often they have ambitions to be you, mm -hmm. which is great. And my personality is to want to train them to the point where they can be and leave. Right. And so it's bittersweet. And we, we've had it happen very, very often where we have these talented people. And for me, instead of trying to stop them and keep them, it's so, it's so blissful for me to see them grow and, and, and leave and, and achieve. Um, but that doesn't help business. I'm sure. <laughs> so do you have any uh, plans to expand What's kind of the future look like for ATC? Yeah. So last year was the first year in two and a half years that we didn't build new clubs. We did that because I felt that reinvesting in our core, our first three clubs 
um, expanding the first three, renovating all brand new. So my 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 uh, fleet of six were brand new, so to speak. Um, a would be good for membership retention, but also uh, I thought would make a statement about the culture, both to our employees and members alike. Um, and to be honest, I felt that the ROI on improving our core three, which are very profitable, would make more money than expanding a new one, which we were right. Um, but now in 2018, we are looking at expansion plans in Bradenton, uh, Tampa, so St. Pete, um, Orlando, that area. So we're looking, the plan would be, depending on performance, one to as many as three clubs a year. Um, but like all of the companies I'm involved in, I am building everything for an exit strategy. Um, so it is not a matter of if, it's a matter of, of when. Um, the timing is right. And when you find the right equity group that has experience and is going to take a brand that you've invested 12 years of your life into uh, and take that in the right direction. But for me, not being, I'm very emotionally involved in my businesses, but not in a bad way. Yeah. I'm very unemotionally involved from the standpoint of there's a time and a place um, to grow, there's a time and a place to step back, and there's a time and a place to exit and hand off. Yeah. That's funny that you talk about exit strategy. I'm, I'm going to use that to tell a story because <clears throat> the first time I met you um, was we were at a bar or something. Don't tell that story. Somebody was a bar. We were at a bar, and I knew of you, mm. and I had known I knew what you looked like because I'd seen you in passing. And for me, I'm the type of person where if I walk into a business and I like the business, I'm looking at everything, how it makes money, the revenue, the cost, the employees. Like I look at all those things as mechanisms. And I remember the first time, because I was one of the first members of your one gym. That, Six months. Yeah, that yeah. you opened. And the first time I walked in there, I was like, how is this possible? How is this place even paying their bills? I'm like, I couldn't understand it. And then I, it all started to make sense with all the other ancillary uh, revenue sources that you had is, is part of your model. And I always remember, it's like, i got to figure out who the owner of this place is. Um, <clears throat> and I had seen you, but I never walked up and introduced myself. So when I saw you that one night, I think I had you know, just, just enough alcohol to where I was confident enough to talk to you. So I walked up and I, and I was like, you're Derek Finney. It was creepy. Yes, it, yeah, he was like, he was like, he was like, yes, uh, I am. And who are you? And so, you know, I said, you know, my name is Logan Paul Vaughn, and I was like, you know, I just want to say I'm super proud of you. Um, I look up to you, and I think you're arguably the best entrepreneur in this area. And I'm super stoked for everything you've done. And then I remember telling you, I said, I think your company is going to get acquired for a hundred million dollars. And then at that point, he looked at me and he was like, who the hell are you? <laughs> we did. We had a good conversation and you, you were impressive. It was, it it was, was a little odd how much you knew about me yeah. in the business, <laughs> but I couldn't help but be impressed that you approached me. Yeah. You were intelligent. You had something to say and you got me to open up about my business, which is not my thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm always looking for talented, younger people than myself because it, it's what excites me, mm -hmm. right? Um, and by far, uh, you, I'll pass along the compliment since you did to me, one of the most impressive individuals, especially at your age, um, just your, your wealth of knowledge and business, your desire, which is just dripping from your, your, you. your pores. <laughs> um, and I think I have, or anyone that's had any level of success has a responsibility mm -hmm. to uh, help 
Um, I, I hate it when I see people that try to keep it to themselves mm -hmm. um, because there's enough for everybody. Yeah. yeah. That gives me chills, honestly. Yeah. Humbled. That's good. Um, I think we'll take it to keeping it real. Keeping it real route. Yeah. Keeping it real. And right. so, um, you know, as always, we interview kind of like these high achieving guests. Um, and there's, I mean, a couple episodes ago, we interviewed this guy. He's like seven years old who built half of Fort Myers. I mean, it was just amazing listening to him talk. But at the end of the day, like it's important for our listeners to know like that you guys are humans, right? Mm -hmm. um, you have a, a wife, you have kids and you have a, you have a life outside of business. Yep. And so um, we like to keep it real just so people can relate and understand um, that the things that you achieve are achievable for them. Absolutely. Um, and so you have different skills and different gifts and a different upbringing, but they absolutely um, have what it takes to accomplish big things. And so, I mean, just someone like me would think, you know what, uh, Derek and Logan and Britt, like they never fear anything. Uh, there's no fear, zero fear. But truth is, is that fear can creep into our lives about certain things. And so uh, the first question we just ask is like, what is something that, that you fear from time to time? I fear failure. The, the, the feeling of, am I going to be okay tomorrow for me never goes away and it's paralyzing at times, but I don't ever want that to go away because it keeps me sharp. Mm -hmm. But because I came from nothing, no matter where I am, I don't believe that I'll ever be fundamentally at my core, anything other than the poor kid from Rhode Island. Sure. Um, it keeps me humble. It keeps me appreciative and it keeps me really sharp and always uh, excited for what's next. It's good. Yeah, it's good. What do you think the next question is one of my favorites? What would you say is probably your biggest failure? Um, if you have one and what are, what's something you learned from it? Hmm. The biggest failure. I think that's a hard question. That's mm -hmm. that interview question that nobody likes. Yep. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting interviewed. Oh, um, I think my largest failure globally, uh, at least when I was younger, was believing that, um, not to go back to it, redundant, that I would never fail. Mm -hmm. Even though I feared, feared failure, I had this ignorant belief that um, I was golden mm -hmm. because I had success after success after success. And so when I first um, experienced failure um, as, a, as a private equity guy, um, you've, you've heard the story of how I turned this into the, maybe one of my largest successes. But the truth is, I acted really fast. I acted brashly and it could have gone a different direction. Yeah. And so I think it's important for me and for everyone to revisit even success because one step left or right, so to speak, even your largest success could have been a massive failure. Mm -hmm. And I definitely allowed my emotions to drive me and kind of went all in on something that could have gone a different direction. Yeah. And I may not have been sitting here and I could have lost something I built up because I'd acted a little, uh, Sprash is really the best word. That's good. Yeah. So what's a skill or trait about yourself that you're currently working on or developing, or, you know, maybe it could be like communication or something like that, that you're just trying to develop further. Um, for me, I, it's less about business. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's important. The work life balance is, is vitally important. And I've made it 
I'm happy that I, since my daughters were born, I made it a priority to, I don't think I've ever missed a dinner with them. I've never missed a game. I never missed a play, any of that type of stuff. Truth of the matter is people that say that you can't miss a meeting, you can't do that. Once you get to a place of success, the truth is you can. The real truth is at some level, you don't want to. No. You kind of want to miss that stuff. And so even though I've always made it a priority, I am now working on trying to tip the scales from work life to life mm. because the truth is I've gotten so astute at my working skills. I really don't need to work as much as I do. And I'm not trying to say that it's not important to hustle and yeah. not, but I'm really trying to work on letting go of that desire for more. Yeah. And everyone, people listening, that's not what I want to hear, yeah, yeah. but it doesn't mean that I don't want more. It doesn't sure. mean that I'm not still hustling. It doesn't mean that I'm not, still achieving on a high level, but it means that I am trying to work on prioritizing my family and friends more so than I ever have. It's good. That's amazing. Really good. I, um, the last question is what do you think separates you or makes you different from other people that are out there? Maybe people you compete with stuff like that. I don't know that there's that much that separates me from anybody. Um, I don't think I'm the smartest guy. I don't think I have these crazy amounts of skills. Um, I think I'm smart enough. I think I'm common sense genius. I like that term. Mm -hmm. I, I am definitely not a genius, but I am a common sense genius. I love that term because to me, that's where everything starts. And we talked about the fundamentals of everything. Um, but I don't know that there's anything special. Um, other than I have an unreasonable, crazy amount of belief in myself mm -hmm. to the point where it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Like I really believe if I set my mind to something that there's nothing that I cannot achieve. Nothing. Love that. If you said, to, if, if someone said to me, you, you need to perform heart surgery, I, honestly, I believe I'll tell you that I don't believe it, but I'm telling you, I believe that I can figure it out. <laughs> now that is unreasonable and ridiculous, but there's something inside of me that goes, no, no, you, you can do this. Just, just try. And so as stupid as it sounds and as cliche as it sounds, I think the difference is I'm just willing to try. Right. Yeah. That's it. And keep trying yeah. and refuse to stop until I've gotten what I want. And that's not disrespectful. And I don't mean being pushy. I mean, just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because I feel like it's such a, so simple, but it, it's hard for people to uh, internalize and understand. A lot of times, the biggest difference between people that are ultra successful and people that maybe haven't gotten them yet is that ability to just never give up, to stay the course, to know, you know, what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish, even when it gets really hard and really shitty, you got to keep going and you don't give up and explore. And what I mean by that is I spend an inordinate amount of time chasing down things that even before I go down the path, I know it's, there's nothing there. Mm -hmm. But the process of just looking around, checking things out, looking, I, I get so, you know this, I get call, nonstop calls and emails, here's an opportunity, here's this. And sometimes I look at stuff and I go, that is the worst idea that I've ever heard in my life. So, Let's go check it out. Because why not? I call it planting seeds. Yeah. You just throw lots of seeds out. Planting and seeds. you water it a little bit and you see if it grows. If That's it grows, it. you know you got a winner. 
Everyone's asked me why I waste my time. I don't know that I've ever wasted a second of my time. That's right. Because some of the things that I've gone into thinking is going to be a miserable failure, waste of time. That's right. I've met the greatest person. I've made a contact or nothing happened. And then two years later, I meet the, I, I see the person again, ultra successful. You, you, you inspired me. You did this. Uh, you just, you just never know. That's yeah. Good, right. And so if you, if you love just the idea of being successful or business, then just, just go where it takes you. Yeah, no, I love it. Love it. Like the persistence of never giving up and then the believing is what I kind of took away from that. And I think the gap between that is, is perseverance, right? And so you can believe and never give up. Um, but this idea that it's going to be easy, I think is a myth. Oh my God. Um, and this idea that like, if I just keep believing and, you know, no, I keep hustling. No, like there's going to be obstacles. Logan and I talk about this all the time. There yeah. are going to be hurdles mm-hmm. and that's part of the journey. And if you don't recognize that as reality, you're going to find yourself wanting to quit. Um, as opposed to, we just talked about it yesterday, Logan. Mm-hmm. Like I literally wake up going, what are my obstacles today? That's the way I approach my day. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it's a pessimistic view of life. I, uh, I like the challenge. And so if you wake up going, you know what? I'm going to be a millionaire. I'm going to own this much real estate, have this much in business. Um, and you think you're just going to skate there, you're out of touch with reality and you're, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I'm so, glad you brought it up because I, I skipped something that is so important. I'm glad you brought it up. Everybody wants to be rich. Yeah. Everybody. I, I've never met someone that's, if you ask them, hey, do you want to be rich? They go, I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> that, that sounds awful. <laughs> right? But 99.999% of the people will literally not take one step to earn that money. Yeah. It is Getting to where I am or whoever, getting any level of success is the hardest goddamn thing you're ever going to do in your life. It is going to feel like misery at times. You're going to want to quit a million times. There's nothing pleasant about it. I work so hard for, I still work hard, but I work so hard for like a 12 year period of time that I question how I even did it. Yeah. That's what it takes. Yeah. The other, other stuff is important too, yeah. but just willing to work your ass off all day and, and, and give up almost everything else. Yeah. And sometimes losing relationships or marriages and friends, all that stuff, that's kind of what's required at times. So mm-hmm. You try to mitigate that because that's the important stuff in life, yeah. but it's hard. Yeah. There's right. nothing easy about it and no level of gifts and no level of opportunity or anything is going to make it happen if you don't have that piece that I neglected. It's great. great. That's good, man. Grit. I, I would say you, you definitely have good grit for sure. Well, this has been amazing. Honestly, I even learned new stuff about you that I didn't know. And there's been so much value here delivered to not only us, but our listeners as well. So first of all, thank you so much for your time. Um, if you will tell the listeners where they can interact with you, how do they find you on Instagram, social, um, website for ATC, stuff like that. I'm kind of hidden. <laughs> I know you're, hidden, but you're, you're, you're out there. Logan brought me up to speed in uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook. No, I mean, you know, I guess the best way to contact me, you can find me through Around the Clock Fitness or on Instagram, uh, just by my name, Derek Faye. At Derek Faye. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I said, I'm always looking for great, uh, great people, more so than great businesses. Great businesses can be developed, but great people can't necessarily, right? So if you've got, if you think you've got what it takes, like a Logan or or, or anybody, um, I'm always looking to invest in people, mm-hmm. and it's people that I'm investing in. Yeah. Um, so yeah. 
Perfect. Well, Derek, man, thank you so much. For- hey, thanks for listening to The Real Deal Show. Be sure to join us next week as we dive into more tips, tricks, and secrets to doing real deals. If you haven't already, please subscribe and review our channel on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you may listen. That's all for today. We'll see you next week.